Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I am Tracy Hotchner, your dog's best friend and your kitty cat's best friend, bringing you authors and experts every week to enhance your appreciation of the pets who share your lives. Please give a listen to all my new Pet Talk radio shows on the Radio Pet Lady Network, co-hosted by top experts at RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Eight Paws LLC, which is solely responsible for its content and is brought to you with the generous support of Platinum Performance Supplements, Precious Cat Litter, Nordic Naturals Omega-3 Fish Oils, Feel Away and Adaptil, and Waruva Pet Foods. Waruva is a privately owned company named after the owner's cats, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. They are dedicated to the highest quality ingredients in their cans and pouches. People could even eat it because it's all made in a human food facility, so everything in there is good enough for us to eat. All the flavors of Waruva, Cats in the Kitchen, and their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend Brands, are great for finicky cats, especially those you're trying to transition away from dry kibble. It's great to be with you on this Saturday. I have wonderful, eclectic bunch of guests. I have Dr. Konstabajikov, who's written a new book called Chasing Dr. Doolittle, Learning the Language of Animals. He's talking about prairie dogs' language, but so many animals have language that, that people are, are a little reluctant to admit to. Then I have Annie Brody, the wonderful director and inspiration behind Camp Unleashed, where you can go this very month, well, the very end of this month, to to a wonderful camp in the Berkshires with your dog. And guess who you get to hang out with? Maisie and me. You can hang out with us. We're going to have so much fun. You'll hear all the great things that happen there. And Michael Kaufman, who's the director of Green Chimneys, the the school in Brewster, New York, for children who are emotionally challenged. It's a farm-based school, and they have a new interactive dog program with dogs from a shelter. I'm going to jump right in and say hi to Dr. Khan. I bet lots of people sort of cheat and call you Dr. Khan, your first name being C-O-N. And they don't, want to, they don't want to step in and say Dr. Slobodchikov, but I'm rather excited that I can say it. Yes, you're one of the few who actually can pronounce it correctly. Well, thank God for that, since you're a man about language and really break, truly breaking new frontiers as you've been doing for decades in your your work, studying the language, the, the way that prairie dogs in particular communicate. You're the Professor Emeritus of Biology at Northern Arizona University and Director of the Animal Language Institute. You have all kinds of degrees. You've been all over the world being feted for your amazing ideas. And I guess maybe a few of the Rotten Tomatoes have been thrown, too. The, the, the beginning of your book, the foreword, suggests that your interpretation, even of other scientists' work, may have some people wagging their fingers that you're imagining too much is going on between and amongst animals. Is that, is that the case? Yes, actually, most scientists and uh, many biologists and philosophers and linguists really do not think that animals are capable of language. They believe that only humans are capable of language and that everybody else just merely communicates, which is uh, just like uh, responding instinctively to a signal without any sort of intention to convey any information. So that's why I have a disclaimer in the beginning of my book, uh, even though I have written a book for a popular audience. I have uh, used something like about 250 references from the scientific literature to show that we have a lot of information already to show that animals 
do have language, but most of those authors who wrote those papers would probably not be willing to say that they were actually writing about language. They were they would say that they were writing about communication. And and it, and it, is it part of your contention in your life's work that somehow humans feel that we have to have something other than the opposable thumb that is only ours, and then if we allowed that other creatures. It's somehow by now agreed upon, if you will, that whales have some kind of language, but that these these other uh, humans think that if other species were able to have what is technically called a language, that that would diminish us on the totem pole, we would get lower on the feeding chain? Absolutely. Some people are really desperate to make humans absolutely unique and on top of the heap. And a long time ago, when I was a graduate student, uh, people used to talk about uh, humans were the only ones who used tools. Well, then we found right. out that of animals used tools. Right. Then it switched to culture. Humans were the only ones with culture. Then it turned out lots of animals have culture. <laughs> so now... It's humans are the only ones with language. Well, it's turning out that lots of animals have language. Yes. So what do these people have to cling to? And I always say that humans are unique, just as every other species is unique. Absolutely and when you right. think about human accomplishments, I mean, we're the only ones that have made nuclear weapons that can blow us up. How unique can that be? Yes, exactly. There's some things about being human that we should be a little more uh, modest about and not and not quite so uh, so proud and, and, and chest beating about. It's it's incredible to imagine when I look at the, the body of work and a life's work like you've had studying these prairie dogs who are so adorable. You've done you've been on television in many different venues showing their life and their way of communicating with each other to have studied them to the point that you can say with 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 assurance that not only do they have language, but they can tell each other what kind of tran- trespasser is coming into their area and even talk about what they look like. Now, explain when your light bulb moment came where you realized these, these noises, these clicks were absolutely specific information uh, sharing. Well, it took actually a long period of time because early on I sort of bought into this idea. Uh, You know, I was taught as a graduate student that animals didn't have language, so I sort of bought into this idea. And it was only through looking at the data and seeing, well, gee, the data don't really fit this hypothesis, and how can we set up an experiment to show whether the hypothesis that animals only communicate versus animals have language is true? So I would set up an experiment and and would show that, uh, yes, animals do have, or the prairie dogs do have calls for different species of predators. And then the data still wasn't quite uh, right, so I'd set up some more experiments to show that not only can they do that, but they can also describe the color of clothes that humans are wearing. They can describe the size and shape of coyotes. They can describe the color of coyotes. They can even describe abstract symbols such as uh, triangles and circles. And with a series of experiments, we found that they can also label a person who once shot off a shotgun in that column and then remember that for the month of the experiment. You know, so it's not pretty, pretty astounding. I mean, it's it obviously had to set the the scientific world somewhat on its ear, because when a, a fellow scientist, a biologist with all sorts of letters after his name, sets up experiments in the way that that experiments are meant to be set up and comes out with these findings, 
those of us that are the ones who know who Dr. Doolittle is, and if you've joined us late, you are listening to Dog Talk and Kitties too. I'm talking to Dr. Khan Slobodchikov. I almost got it. Slobodchikov. Um, who's written this marvelous book, Learning the Language of Animals. It's called Chasing Dr. Doolittle. Those of us who are who watch the Nat Geo channel and Discovery and what have you, Animal Planet, we're like, that's so great. Look at them telling each other that it's a man in a green shirt and not a coyote in a in a blue Mercedes. But I imagine that we just want very much to believe that, whereas scientists seem very much to not want to believe it. And it must have been and maybe continues to be a little bit of a lonely path for you because you must have gained, because you give us a sense of it, so much respect and fascination for these little rodents who are cute as buttons. And I think that, if I'm not wrong, the Humane Society of the United States has had to do something to protect them. They're, they needed some special protection, and little do we know they actually could talk about it. Yes, well, actually, they are rapidly disappearing from our landscape. Uh, all prairie dogs are found in North America, and we now have fewer than 2% of the numbers that we had 100 years ago. So they're very rapidly disappearing, and a lot of people view them as pests and annoyances and so on. But the encouraging thing about my work is that uh, when I talk to people and show them that prairie dogs have language, they suddenly start to empathize with prairie dogs. Not as just little creatures running underfoot that are an annoyance, but creatures kind of like us. And I think that that translates into all animals in general. You know, once we start recognizing that animals like ants, bees, you know, yes. uh, can talk to each other, we can start empathizing with these creatures instead of just uh, looking at them as some kind of annoyance. Well, I think that the title of the book, Chasing Dr. Doolittle, really speaks to that, the idea that there is a warm fuzzy around the idea, and yet there's a resistance to the concept. What comes to mind to me immediately is all of, in the the sort of Anglo-Saxon world, beloved children's books in which Stuart Little and, uh, you know, Black Beauty and Charlotte's Web, where animals spoke, of course, they were speaking human language but we've we children if we grew up with those as our fabulous books we believed that as children and then we were supposed to, we were taught to disbelieve it as adults it's not like santa claus though it's not something you need to stop believing in it's a true fact maybe not exactly the way you know eb white would write it but along those lines sure absolutely uh and uh, the thing is that uh since we were taught to disbelieve this, for some people, it's really hard to go back to this yes. idea of when they were kids, you know, and they thought that animals could talk and they thought that they could talk to animals, you know, and then suddenly it was like uh, telling them, well, Santa Claus doesn't exist. And yes. now you come back and say, well, really, there is a Santa Claus. He's just not exactly like what you thought. That's right. And that and have you had many colleagues over the years? Do students work with you? Do you have a team of people that have studied the prairie dogs with you? Are you like a core group of of a team of people that have been standing up to to prove this to the world? Or is it sort of you in in a lonely way trying to get a little bit of help from from one side or another? Oh, no. I've been working with uh, a variety of colleagues. I've had uh, uh, over the years teams of graduate students, teams of undergraduate students, many volunteers who have worked with me. How nice. Many colleagues. Uh, I've worked with uh, computer scientists, uh, uh, you know, so uh, it's not a a lonely sort of endeavor standing out there. I've actually had a a large group of people who have worked with me. 
And what was your moment where you you were the guy that did prairie dogs instead of the guy that did bees or ants or dolphins? What was what was the circumstance that that made prairie dogs what jumped out at you and spoke to you? Well, I actually got into studying prairie dogs uh, entirely by accident because uh, prior to that, I was studying beetles that had uh, defensive secretions, and I became allergic to the defensive secretions. And oh, I was how interesting! Something else to study, and somebody said, "Well, you know, we have lots of prairie dogs around here. Why don't you study prairie dogs?" And I said, "Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, maybe I could do that." And so I kind of got into this by the back door. And without, and without an agenda. It's not as though you were around a lot of prairie dogs and you pricked up your ears one day and thought, you know what, they seem to be actually talking. It was really, okay, let me see what about them is, is worthy of, of paying attention to. Yeah, and, and I first started looking at their social system. I didn't even look at their communication system because I bought into this idea that uh, uh, their chiefs are all meaningless. Right. Right. Uh, you know, and then gradually over time, as I started listening to them, I started thinking, hmm, well, maybe there's something to this. Because, Let me investigate this. Because and off it was I went. not the same cheap all the time. There was a different cadence or pattern. That's right. Yes. So you, different cadence and pattern. So, you know, when we think about um, not I guess they aren't really sci fi movies, but futuristic movies, a Steven Spielberg kind of movie with an E.T. or some sort of visitors from another planet. Uh, I often it, it seem, comes to mind that often the noises that those creatures from another planet that we try to imagine are making sort of sound maybe like prairie dog chirps and cheeps. In other words, we we accept that maybe a, a futuristic Martian or an ET could talk in strange little sounds and clicks and things we don't understand, but we would know it was language. But where animals are concerned, it might as well just be a a, a canary going cheep 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 cheep. I mean, is that, does that seem to be true, that we have a little bit of a closed mind? Well, yes, but here's the fascinating thing. A long time ago, I came across uh, a recording done by Roger Payne, who worked with uh, the songs of humpback whales. Yes. And in the recording, he had recordings of the humpback whales, which sort of sound like somebody having a stomachache, you know, boo, 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 boo. And then what was really fascinating on the recording was that he sped it up 16 times, and it sounded just like birdsong. And then he took birdsong and slowed it down 16 times, and it sounded just like whales. Oh, I'll be darned. Fascinating thing to me is, you know, a prairie dog chirp is just a tenth of a second, and in that tenth of a second it contains a tremendous amount of information. But if you slow it down, it sort of stretches out into something that is much more like a, a bird singing, you oh, know. Darned. So do they have an extraordinary sense of hearing that they're able to pick up so much data from a very short, what to us appears to be a short sound? Sure. Uh, they have tremendous hearing. And just recently, uh, and I have this on my Facebook page, uh, Dr. Khan on Facebook. Dr. Uh, Khan is C-O-N. This is something you'll definitely want to follow. It's pretty cool. Uh, I have this on my Facebook page where somebody took uh, cricket chirps, which just sound like, you know, chirp, 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 right. chirp. And they slowed it down so that uh, the cricket chirps were more or less in the same timeline as humans have a timeline. You know, humans live 70 years. If you extend sort of the timeline of crickets to 70 years, 
what would that slowed down chirp sound like? And it sounds just like a chorus of angels singing. Wow. It's just so tremendous. Wow. Slow down. And I think that that's pretty much a rule that we have been overlooking is that we operate on one timeline. Yes. Other animals like dogs, for example, operate on a much shorter timeline. Dogs live 12 years, right. you know. If, uh, if you're lucky. So, so like it's the 3378 thing. Speed it up, slow it down, completely changes what it sounds like. Absolutely. And then you start seeing all of that information that before you never saw because you just heard this chirp and, uh, you know, we humans tend to think that everything revolves around us. And so we hear a chirp and we think that's all there is. There's no information. Because we don't have a, we don't have a way to dissemble, to decipher that into all of the different components of that information. We're we're actually slower than they are in a sense. Dr. Khan, before we we finish up, I want you to talk a little bit about your wonderful ebook about your standard poodle. It sounds so great. Yeah, well, I wrote the uh, book, Autobiography of a Poodle, based on the life of my standard poodle, Zephyr. And uh, I wanted to present something about the life of Zephyr, but uh, I thought that I would do it from a, a slightly different slant, as if Zephyr were dictating this to me. And trying to get into the mind of a dog, what would a dog think of if the dog was actually recounting his own story to you? And so that's what the book presents, is all of the events that actually happened to Zephyr, but as if they were from his point of view. So it's just a wonderful combination that we have two books that we can get from Dr. Khan Slobodjikov. I said it pretty well this time. Chasing Dr. Doolittle is this new book that's all about prairie dog language. An autobiography of, of a poodle is an ebook that you can get on Amazon through the link that I will give you on the podcast of this dog talk. But also you can go to Dr. Khan's Facebook page, C-O-N, and have a great time there. Dr. Khan, your life is wonderful. Keep up the wonderful work. Keep on speaking for the animals. They deserve it. Well, thank you, Tracy, and I really appreciate your having me on your show. Well, I appreciate the chance to let everyone know that there are wonderful minds and great scientists who love all kinds of animals and will increase our appreciation of them, too. I think it just makes the world go around a little sweeter. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. I'll be right back after this quick word with Annie Brody from Camp Unleashed. This show has been supported by Platinum Performance since its first broadcast. Platinum Performance makes comprehensive nutritional supplements which contain nutrients designed to improve overall health at a cellular level, especially joint health and the arthritis that comes with aging. Platinum Performance makes supplements for dogs, cats, horses, and people, too. We are also supported by the pheromone products Feelaway for Cats and Adaptal for Dogs. Pheromones are chemical communicators that are a natural signal of comfort in your pet's brain. Feelaway and Adaptil plug-in diffusers are stress relievers that can help with anxiety or behavior issues and also help adopted pets make the adjustment to their new homes. Veterinarians carry Feelaway, which can reduce problems in a multi-cat household, and they have Adaptil collars, which can help dogs with anxiety from separation, thunderstorms, or travel. Hey, Annie, welcome back to Dog Talk. You and I were here together a couple of, I don't know, three years ago? How time flies. Camp Unleashed has become a phenom, hasn't it? It has. I'm very happy to say. You should be so proud of yourself. There, there have been a couple of other places where people could go with their dogs. Um, they weren't really camping because they weren't necessarily in a tent, you know, by a river. But you have 
and a place where you've brought together some amazing trainers and inspiration for people to do things with their dogs that they never sort of thought they could do. Are you surprised at how many people want to do it with dogs of all types and all sizes and shapes? You know, I'm not because people who love dogs know that dogs need to be in nature and there's very little places where they, there are very few places where they can go, especially, you know, having them off leash. And that's my big thing is, as you know, Tracy, I know there are plenty of ways you can travel with your dog, but they're confined. They have to be in crates in the room and if you're going down the hallway, they have to be on leash. I wanted a place where dogs could be free to be dogs and people could see what, who their dog is as an animal in nature. And that's what seems to really connect with people. And as, as people know from listening to me uh, or on, over the years on the show, I'm that person who hates leashes. I, I might have had dogs. I had one dog who I think he felt more secure and happy to be on the leash. But I'm like, go figure it out for yourself. I don't want to be attached <laughs> at the hip, you know. So I'm very lucky to have created an unleashed dog life for myself, both when I was in the Hamptons between the beaches and the woods and also now in Vermont. But I, I remember when I visited the camp and we talked about nutrition a couple of times, it was pretty eye-opening for people that were city dwellers to have that moment where they unhooked the leash. Talk a little bit about the kind of transformative moment when people understand that they are safe and their dog is safe around other people and other dogs pretty much no matter what, right? Yes, um, you know, it is pretty amazing. Uh, of course, you know, dogs are becoming more accepted everywhere and there are more dog parks, but people know that dog parks sometimes um, uh, can be kind of, what's the right word? Uh, there are a lot of trouble, Annie, between disease and dog fights. Yep. Yeah, and yep. people fights. Yeah, a lot of problems can exist in a dog park. I mean, if people have no other option, I've never right. been a fan. So, you know, we have a nice one in, in, in the Hamptons, but it's nice because it's gigantic. You don't even see the fence lines. It's a lot different right. than well, most that are a chain link fence that can be seen exactly. from all, right? So here what we've got is 500 acres um, tucked away with a private lake. Um, and when people let their dogs off leash, who are virgins, we call them virgins. Oh, leash, I love that. Uh, they, are very tr they are very fearful, I have to say. And then when they realize that their dog is bonded to them so strongly and is having such a great time that there's no desire, that the dog has no desire to go explore elsewhere, they come to another level of understanding with their dog. And there's a this sense of, I call it mutual respect, where somehow they've come to a level of understanding of who they each are in this ma magical relationship and the dog actually seems grateful. I know this is anthropomorphizing. <laughs> but we've all, but Annie, we've all seen that gratitude moment. I know when I used to yes. take Lulu down to the beach in East Hampton, my first rescued wine, who I don't think had ever been to a beach, and she for sure had never been unleashed in her life. There were, every time I took her, for some reason the beach just really rang her bell more than almost anything. She would come flying back at me and leap in the air in front of me, and I absolutely believed it was gratitude. Thank you for bringing me here. Thank you for giving me this life, and I think that happens at your camp. Yes, and I also think that dogs recognize in some way that, that unleashing is, is, is not only free, but it's acknowledging that they're animals. Yes. It's acknowledging that yes. they have a separate, independent life of their own. It's not human-like. They don't think in terms of concepts. But they have a life. They have emotions, they have desires, they have stimulus, and they have response. And so 
it's such a break from the human world, and that's what I always tell people. I said, think about it. You know, we, we bring dogs into our lives because we love them, and then we ask them to do everything that humans do. You know, go to the bathroom here when, when I say, and come right. here and do right. that. And even dogs in the offices, you know, they can't rifle through the garbage the way they might like to. In nature, they can kind of, you know, dig up a hole and smell what's underneath. So I always say to people, you know, just think about giving your dog a break for three days of the year where they can have that freedom to exercise their animalness, to explore, to, to socialize with other dogs, to find their own way. And it builds such great confidence in dogs. And that's the other thing that I find amazing is that even the dogs that come into this somewhat timid, uh, I wouldn't say fearful because most dogs these days do get a lot of socialization. But sometimes they're 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 a little bit shy. Let's yes, that with, certainly with other dogs, definitely. Yes, and when they when you're off the leash, when the dogs are off the leash, in this wide open space with so many people that love them, uh, you know, all the people there love dogs, that they feel that they can kind of um, uh, get. It's almost like a reset button. That's the way I like to think of it. They get back into their natural state, and whatever reactive experiences they've had in the past. They kind of let those go because they find their core again as an animal. Uh, it's hard to explain, but I've you know we've done camps now for ten years, Tracy. It's amazing to me. But I started in. I remember. I remember the first year you did it, and I thought, boy, you were bold because this was an idea <laughs> whose time had not yet come. Because it Correct. isn't just hang out and stay in these wonderful cabins. The cabins don't have electricity, but th there's a there's a a, a a kind of a a hotel also that you can choose, right? A, like a bed and yes. breakfasty well, it, kind of a building? Lodge. A lodge, right. No, we don't do the bed and breakfast anymore, but at the Berkshires, we're fortunate. It's a very uh, uh, comfortable kind of campus. We have rustic cabins without electricity, as you mentioned, but then we also have a lodge that has electricity and indoor bathrooms. And a lot of the city people who are not kind of comfortable being roughing it, as we say, in the cabins uh, prefer that. For my take, I love the idea of, you know, opening the door and having my dog be outside immediately. And, you know, and so yeah, and the I, dog can wee-wee in the woods, and you can too, but I know we really are supposed to use the, the facilities. There are actual outdoor plumbing facilities. I, there is still, a, you know, the thing that, the reason I'm going, I've never, I wanted to come and see it, and I love to see the other, It's fit, your total capacity is 50 or 55 people with dogs, right? Correct. So it's a Correct. nice number. It's not insanely large. It's not like a carnival cruise. It's more like the right. Silver Sea cruise, right? Except for, of course, right. it's on and land. In fact, we could take more, but I set that limit because uh, I, know, I know that people want to feel comfortable, safe, and get to know each other in a short period of time. And with 50, 55 people, that's doable. When you start adding on, you know, up towards 100 people, which I know some camps do, I've been to them. I didn't feel comfortable. I felt like I was in another environment. And yes. here, people get, become a family. They become a pack. The dogs yeah. become a pack, and the people become a pack. Well, for, well, so for me, the, th the thing that's interesting, since I have an Unleashed Life, is mm -hmm. that while that is a big draw, and it is the name of it, mm -hmm. and it is your driving force behind it, what you've brought together in terms of experts and trainers and enablers is is an absolute column a column b column c it's like the greatest deli menu ever Aww, because thank you. and that's why i want to come with Maisie because the other dogs i had were fine around other dogs they were always unleashed they could always you know go in and out of a dog door wherever i've lived that's just sort of been a really big important part of my life and i've been lucky enough to be able to create it 
but I didn't have dogs that I thought would really want to learn how to track. And therefore, if they didn't really want to, it wouldn't be fun for me. Or agility. Right. Now, on right. on the show Good Dogs, we did a whole show on Agility 101. You have agility equipment. You have agility trainers to show us what it is if we want exactly. to. Also, dock diving. Oh, my God. I know. Where Maisie dock came diving. from, the Tri-State Wine Runner Rescue down in Virginia Beach. Hi, Dan Stallings. He is a dock diving competitor with his rescued wines. Goes all over oh. the, the, the Northeast driving to these competitions he has his own dock diving set up at his doggy daycare i've never imagined wow. trying that and the tracking and scenting it sounds so cool and then we have like i she doesn't seem to like water and because you have a lake the dogs can walk in and she'll probably swim for the first time in her life there so you have a lot of virgin only, swimmers right yes not only do we have a lake but we have erica etchison from canine water sports who's a certified uh, trainer in water sports. What is so that? I don't even know what that is. You don't know that. That's so interesting. It's one of the newer ones, um, like Scent Games, which came from Search and Rescue um, for dogs, you know, working dogs. This comes out of underwater Search and Rescue. Oh, my gosh. And so the basic skills that they teach them are to um, to swim without, you know, jumping onto their human, which is a biggie for a lot of people. And you get to swim alongside your dog and look at your dog eye to eye at, oh you're at the God. same level, which is, it, it just gives me chills whenever I say it because it's new for them, it's new for you. It, it establishes another, another, you know, foundation for your relationship. They learn to retrieve and they learn to tow like I've seen dogs tow another dog on a little boogie board. No, like like yeah. Newfoundlands are are actually born and yeah. bred and raised to do. Well, the the camp which people can absolutely still get into, the one I'm going to, and I would love to meet some dog talk listeners there, is the first weekend in June. Will it not be pretty nippy in the in the? And people just go to CampUnleashed.com and get all the info. But will it not be pretty nippy in that lake? Do I need a wetsuit or something? Oh, you know, for the humans, it might be. It depends on how, how the weather is. You know, it can be in the 80s or it could be in the 70s. And right. I guess you'd rather have to be in the 80s to be in the water. What I found is most people, if they don't go swimming, they at least walk in and they play with the dog. On That's the, on, fun. And train in the shallow part. Um, we, do t we do teach them to go out. Um, uh, there's, there we set up these deep water platforms that are stable oh my goodness. on the ground. And have tops to them, and the dogs learn to get up onto the platform from afar. No. We help them in the beginning, but, you know, the instructors help them. But they learn to, 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 to see your, your, your cue for that, get on it, get off it, hop around from one to another, and they no. have a blast. Seriously? So, so this is a sport which is a competitive sport that is now exists in competitive situations? It does. They have a, what they call splash camp. Oh my Every goodness! Year, um, you should have you should have the founder Deborah Riley is her name, on on your show because uh, she's the driving force behind this and I've just been really impressed with the uh, we share that same philosophy Tracy as you do and, and I do of, of of really respecting the dog and 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 wanting to give them the best life possible on their terms, you know. Well, this and is incredible that you've, you know, this is your, your philosophy, and it really is the driving force behind it, but you're finding like-minded people doing these yeah. amazing sports, and the sports actually grow out of functional man-dog right. 
work, like search and That's rescue. Right. Now, tell about the scent tracking, because this dog, Maisie, her nose is never not on the ground. I, I believe in many ways there's a lot of a lot of things she could do to help man in life other than just be my incredibly fabulous new best friend getting me over the loss of Teddy and Scooby. But yeah. she has a nose on the ground like there couldn't be a bloodhound with their nose on the ground more what is scent <laughs> tracking because that's another competitive sport where they fall is it like a drag race where the the hounds follow a drag and not a real fox <laughs> well i've never seen it compete in, in in competition i know that it exists and uh i know that the way we teach it which is of course everything that we teach is the introductory level we, of course. we are not this camp is not about competition at all. Everybody wants to just We're all virgins. Dog and, and have a great time. Yeah. And so we offer all of these different uh, classes as a way for people to see what where their dog might thrive and try something new. Even if it doesn't work out, it's always fun. You learn something about the dog. So, uh, in, in, But what I understand scent to be and what scent games is about is first we teach the dogs uh, to, to, to sniff, to, to look for something in boxes. So they can't oh. see the, the item, and they, they have to use their nose. Once they start to get that that's what the game is, you know, it, it opens up to another level because dogs, as you know, can smell to such an extent. Yes. It's even hard for us to imagine. That's the, right. The, the, the depth of, of their capacity to distinguish over time and distance and right. everything. Right, right. So, uh, they, so once they see that this is what we're actually rewarding them for, they get a treat when they find, you know, the the the, the item in in the in the box. Then you start building a higher level, and we will be offering both introduction and intermediate scent games at this class at this camp because we've had so many people who've done the the wow. intro and they want more. The second part will be uh, actually getting them to distinguish between a couple of different scents that are tr uh, traditional scents that are used in. Uh, in tracking, it's birch and uh, oh, uh, two or three. I can't remember their names, but they're they're you know natural uh, really uh, extracts that have very specific scents. Uh, That's Maisie and, saying, "I want to try birch." I hear that. She's she. It's you know the dogs often comment at the strangest times because if you have a radio studio and you're the the dog lady, what do you expect? If you've tuned in late, you're listening to Dog Talk. I'm talking to Annie Brody, the director and guiding light behind Camp Unleash, this amazing three-and-a-half-day camp in the Brookshires that Maisie and I happen to be going to first weekend in June. Annie, the scent work, it sounds, it kind of reminds me of those bomb and drug-sniffing dogs that they show them doing this work as a demo. And they, too, are looking for something inside a box. Is that exactly. is that the traditional way that, is it, did you say it's called nose work? Well, yes. From what I understand, and I've heard these, the, the founders speak at one of the conferences for dog trainers, um, the, the two women that started it actually do search and rescue work with their dogs, and they, they saw the joy that their dogs had in the experience of being able to use their incredible uh, scent abilities. And so they wanted to create some kind of program for, for regular dogs that would have that same capacity. And so they've just tailored it down on a much more low-key level, obviously. Right. Working dogs have a whole different life. But um, they, they tailored it down and used some of the same techniques and the same sense to discriminate, to begin that discrimination so that the dog knows, oh, right now I only care about birch. Right, you know, exactly. Oh, right now, whatever I only the care thing about is. Cocaine, yeah. You know, whatever it might right. be. 
Well, we've it's run out of any. We're running out of time. But the other thing that you offer, which I'm definitely going to do, is you mm -hmm. show people how the trainer there shows people what is required to get the Canine Good Citizen Award, which you need to have to oh, become yeah. a therapy dog. And they teach yeah. you the elements. You practice it, and you can even take the test at Camp Unleashed. Right? That's correct. And we don't even charge people. We, we so much believe wow. that all dogs are, are all dogs are therapy dogs. Um, That's so cool. We have we have a, a lot of people who come who are actively therapy dogs with their, you know, therapy partners with their dogs. And we even have a class uh, by one of the Delta Pet Partner um, evaluators talking about, you know, how to know if your dog is suited for this, what it requires, just to kind of introduce people to uh, therapy dog work. But the Canine Good Citizenship Test, um, you know, and certification is offered free at camp as, as just part of being a good a good dog. Well, I, I, I can't wait because all these classes are included in the price, along with wonderful meals that can be vegan or vegetarian. I'm sure there's some gluten-free for me, too. I cannot yeah. wait to come. I am so hoping that some of you listening will be able to find a way to sneak away Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, the first weekend in June. Thank you so much, Annie. I cannot wait to try all this fun stuff. I think I'm more excited than Maisie will be. Have a great day. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll be right back after this quick word. Support for Dog Talk comes from Precious Cat Litter, which is privately owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who is dedicated to creating litters to appeal to pussy cats and protect their health. All the Precious Cat Litters are low dust for the health of all members of the household. Touch of the Outdoors is their newest litter made from field grass that provides environmental enrichment for indoor cats and entices them into the litter box with the natural scent of the great outdoors. Support for this show also comes from Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. Nordic Naturals uses responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and uses third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness in all their oils. I am here with Michael Kaufman, who is the director of the Green Chimneys Farm and also of the trust that is doing amazing things, all of which I don't even know. Last, last week, I was talking to Maureen Darty, who runs the Dog Interaction Program. So, Michael, it's so kind of you to come on because I realize there is just so much depth and breadth to what Green Chimneys does, and you are part of our larger community. So it's just wonderful to have you here to, to crow a little bit about what it is that you do and, and also for me to heap praise on you for a life you've lived in the in the world of goodness. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. What, what a nice way to welcome me. Well, I think they're, they're incredibly fortunate to have a man with, with your long, long history of involvement in both animal and children welfare issues. I, I guess a, a very natural segue is from the American Humane Association, which sadly is, is not as well known as it should be for being, I, is it the nation's oldest nonprofit that, that looks out for the welfare of children and animals? Exactly. What makes American Humane Association so special is, is that going back to the early roots of the humane movement, they um, built on that connection that the protection of children especially and the protection of animals really have have a lot in common. And that's something that uh, the early founders in the United States Humane Movement, uh, Henry Berg, George Angel in Massachusetts, 
all um, shared, and there's the famous story, of course, of Mary Ellen, who was a little girl in the tenements of New York who in the 1800s was taken away from horrible abuse and neglect by animal welfare um, workers. Oh, I'm getting chills. Actually, the protection of animals precedes the protection of children. So the early child welfare laws grew out of the, the sentiment that animals needed protection. And uh, Hollywood even made a movie out of that years and years ago that, uh, you know, and they sort of made Henry Burke, the founder of the ASPCA, say, if this child is an animal, animals deserve protection, then doesn't this child oh, also? Oh, my goodness. It, was this a movie, a kind of infomercially kind of movie back uh, in the no, day? No, it, it, it was one of those very sappy, I think, 1950s uh, black and white darned. movies. But no, the story of Mary Ellen really is quite well known in humane circles. And so American Humane Association picked that up and to this day have two separate uh, sort of divisions that do work quite differently now. Obviously, animal welfare has gone in one direction. Child welfare now is in a different direction. We accept both of them as part of our society. But that was not like that in the early days. You know, what's really amazing is that we have such a short history in America that it's it's just really awful that that more of us don't really understand the arcs of of history in various ways but most particularly where children and animals are concerned because i think that right now today it almost seems not politically correct to say children and animals it's like wait hang on you're equating children with animals well actually as you just pointed out children didn't have any rights at all you know, whether it was child working, children working or being abused or being starved. And yet the animals came first in, in our society. And of course, now it would seem that that is backwards. But I guess that sense of history is something that's really important to understand how far we've come. But I guess Absolutely. what you what you did at, at American Humane would be wildly different from what you're doing at Green Chimneys, which is so incredibly hands-on right in front of you. The welfare of these at-risk children and their involvement with animals, not just companion animals, is an innovative idea that I guess the the whole world is watching. Talk a little bit about how how your path in Green Chimneys crossed and how it's allowing you, I would think, to fulfill some incredible ideas and projects. Well, very quickly, you know, early on in my life as a six-year-old child, animals were the single most important interest uh, for me. And uh, throughout my childhood, I really tried to work with animals, large and small, wherever I could. Growing up in a family that did not have animals, I really had to find um, animals and did. Um, Career-wise, I always wanted to work with animals in the 1970s when I graduated high school and went to college, your choice in animal careers was being a veterinarian or um, going to animal science or then being a zookeeper. And neither one of those sort of suited me, and that's how I started my career at the ASPCA in New York City as a humane educator. You know, that then immediately led me um, to the American Humane Association to become director of education there. And during that period, I really discovered that if I wanted to help animals, if I wanted to protect animals, make the situation better for animals, I better start working with people. 
And so the human component and working with people then led me to animal-assisted interventions, animal-assisted therapy, working with animals and vulnerable populations of people, uh, which really uh, I saw as an antidote in part to the maltreatment of animals. It also just makes sort of a social statement that we must work with all vulnerable uh, populations, sort of a social justice yes. paradigm. Yes, yes. And then, of course, after a while at American Humane, I was, and you said it beautifully, I was doing a lot of speaking and teaching and writing, but what I was missing was actually doing the work and actually being around animals because I went from hotel to hotel doing conferences and yes. workshops and trainings. So when Dr. Sam Ross, our founder, who, dear man, now is 84, had an opening as farm director at Green Chimneys here in Brewster, New York, he um, called me and said, do you want to come and take over the farm? And wow. uh, it didn't take me more than two minutes to say yes, because I had known uh, Green Chimney since my days in New York City in the 1980s, when from the 92nd Street shelter in Manhattan, we used to bring uh, farm animals that were found on the cities of New York to Green Chimneys. Oh, come on. To have a permanent life. So, excuse me, farm animals in New York City. Now, we all know that, that back in the day when New York had had uh, dirt streets, Fifth Avenue was a muddy, dirt, potholed road, and, and there were certainly a lot of horses. I, I guess there were there were also wee farms, like, that had livestock what, in what, I don't know, what used to be, what is now Central Park. My, my history is so weak. But in the 1980s and 90s? Oh, you'd be surprised. To this day, New York City... And, you know, oftentimes it's the, the goat that fell off the proverbial truck. But, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of ethnic communities. There's a lot of um, sort of little semi-rural enclaves where people try to keep chickens or oh my goats gosh. or, uh, you know, and uh, th there are some slaughter animals that transition through New York City and sometimes get loose. Um, even now, um, even two or three years ago, the ASPCA brought us a cow that they confiscated in, in sort of a back lot in Brooklyn. Uh, no it still kidding. happens. Isn't that... Now, this is really one of those unknown little corners of, of the animal welfare world. How extraordinary. You're listening to Dog Talk. I'm talking to Michael Kaufman, the director of Green Chimneys Farm and of the trust that, that has been set up by Sam Ross and his wife. Sam Ross, I have to say, has been on Dog Talk uh, a number of years ago, he's a very dear friend of my father's, an octogenarian and an, an nonogenarian, if that's the right word, who have spent a great deal of their lives involved in these amazing nonprofit uh, ideas that have to do with children, in my father's case, Newman's Own, which is a big supporter of Green Chimneys. And Sam is there every day. He and his wife live on the campus or just off of it. it it's pretty amazing when and he is an educator i think originally but he, he had this inc amazing idea of how to bring animals into the lives of children who in the case of green chimneys have a lot of emotional challenges and often can't not only can't function in a quote-unquote normal school be it public or private sometimes they can't even function in their own homes is that right michael absolutely absolutely you know Sam Ross is a, is a real visionary. Um, when he was 19 years old in 1947, he asked his father to purchase him a farm, and he wanted to start a school on a farm. Um, his father was in a position to buy him that farm, and young Sam, uh, decade by decade, stuck by this idea. He married his wife, Myra, and they 
continued to work at Green Chimneys. You know, in the early days, it really was more of a 19th century idea of, you know, back to the land, growing up in sort of this bucolic farm setting that somehow working on the farm would be good for the kids, raise your own food. Right. But what really happened is in the 1960s and 70s, both uh, Mr. and Mrs. Ross, Dr. and Mrs. Ross, were part of the emergence of what eventually became the human-animal bond, the notion of a more targeted animal-assisted therapy, animal-assisted education. And they are right up there with Dr. Earl Strimple, with um, some of the really uh, founders of this whole field, and uh, have been a part of that ever since. And of course, um, since that time, a lot of these interventions involving animals, uh, be it in hospitals, nursing homes, hospice, uh, of course, dogs being very much uh, at the core of this, but also involving therapeutic horseback riding, um, other types of animal interventions. You know, this only grew up in the last 30 years, and the Rosses, again, are, are to be credited both locally having done this work here at Green Chimneys, but also nationally and even internationally. I understand that in Israel they're, they're thinking of, of trying to use Green Chimneys as a model for a similar kind of a school farm setting. I, I think it's important for listeners to know that Green Chimneys is part of our larger community in Westchester. Brewster, New York is just actually part of where WLIU, WPPB, oh my God, it's so funny, I said that by automaticity. Peconic Public Broadcasting is what we now are. Um, it reaches, and my understanding is that if you have, a, if you live in that area and might think that a school like this, if you have a child on the autism spectrum or with severe behavior issues, they, there is a, a process by which you can become part of Green Chimneys, either residential, in which case I've been there and seen the amazing birds of prey and also seen many children who have one-on-one -on -one a, a teacher's assistant slash social worker with them at all times. So it's an amazing place that seems like a jolly, amazing vegetable garden and loads of animals. And now my mini donkeys, Mona and Lisa, live there, along with two other wonderful little brother um, mini horses that came from the Hamptons as well. You've welcomed them all on behalf of the children, Michael, and we definitely oh, thank you well. for that. Sure. So it's no, good to it, know it, that, your, that your doors are open for children for whom what you have to offer is appropriate. Well, very um, briefly, we are a, a residential and or day school. We have about 200 students in our main population at our Brewster campus. We have a secondary campus in Carmel. Uh, our primary referral source uh, is our school systems. We serve New York State, so it could be anywhere from New York. Um, the school system and the families decide that the child cannot be served appropriately in the school due to psychosocial disabilities. And 60% of our students right now are on the autism spectrum. Wow. Um, on average, our students have been psychiatrically hospitalized twice prior to coming here. They really are at a point where their families are struggling, where it's not clear how to best support that child. And we provide, uh, we really are almost a psychiatric hospital here. We have a school, but we are a treatment setting. We have psychiatrists on the property. There's a lot of medication support, 
family therapy, different therapies. So the animals and the nature-based work we do are really integrated into that. And so anyone who who has a child or um, you know in, in their family who may fit this profile, it might be worthwhile to explore if you know if placement here would be worthwhile. In terms of ages, we serve children five to eighteen years of age, um, boys and girls. It's pretty exciting work. I mean, if I lived any closer, I'd think the heck with all this pet-only stuff. I should really be helping a few humans while I'm at it. I think one of the, the great joys of knowing about what the American Humane Association stands for and, and the work you did there, but what you're doing as a almost a pilot program that would not be easy to replicate all over the place. And yet if, if someone had a vision and a drive like Sam Ross did as a young man, or even as a middle-aged person, even as an older person, I think Imus at some older age decided he wanted to do something like the Hole in the Wall Gang Camp and just went ahead and did it, you know, used them as a, as a kind of a, a leader. It's exciting to know that, that there are ways in which animals, and now in, in addition to the farm animals, dogs, can be used not only to help these kids, but to prove to the outside world scientifically that this is something that can make a huge difference to those individuals and therefore to society at large. So many of us have heard of something like the dog reading program, which has been well publicized. The idea that a child who's got reading disabilities or, or uh, discomfort reads out loud to a dog and feels more empowered and not criticized and everyone that hears that, or at least I speak for myself, thinks, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. And we don't understand that came from a, a long, long history of understanding that this is part of a bigger picture of the therapeutic value of dogs and other animals. I, I think it's really important that people understand it is a movement, and it's one that has made us a better society. I guess that there's that quote that many people that are in the sort of rescue shelter world seem to have on their signature in their emails about, you know, a society is judged by how it handles or treats the most vulnerable or those that can't speak for themselves. And, and they're all, they think they're only referring to dogs and cats, but it's children too, right, Michael? I mean, we, we forget that they're all vulnerable and we can make life better for all of them, especially the ones that need it most. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, what, what also real, first off, uh, folks listening uh, to you are part of the choir and uh, the choir being people who intuitively understand That's right. that being uh, with a dog, being with an animal, being in nature, that that's sustaining, that that's positive. But we do live in a world that is increasingly becoming technological yes. and more focused on the indoors than the outdoors. So, you know, we need to really make the inroads uh, on the local governmental level in schools to really remind uh, the doubters that it's not just these sort of feel-good stories or Correct. anecdotes, but that there is some real evidence of why working with animals and children, for example, often can make you more effective than than simply working with them in a, a you know therapist's office, eighty percent of our students go back into their families in under three years, in really? two and a half years. And these are you children, know, many of which have had two psychiatric hospitalizations before coming absolutely. to you. Wow. So you know we really try to you know maximize on each child's strength. It's not about curing them. And what the animals and the nature programs do is, is they really help us speed up the process of helping the child sort of 
um, you know, they develop life skills that can transfer back into their home school, into where they're going. But what I also wanted to throw out there, and, and you know, I, I'm sure you're going to agree, I think in the last uh, 10, 15 years, this sort of animal therapy thing has almost become a cliche. And yes. a lot of times people feel that simply taking an animal, putting it with kids, great things will happen. And what we really try to remember here, whether it's dogs, whether it's uh, farm animals, horses, animals are not magic vitamin pills. Well and said. If an animal is to really do good work in an education or therapy context, their needs need to be met. We need to be familiar with their stress signals. We need to really understand the animal component in the interaction, and that's very important. That's a great point because you've, you've taking, you're taking in dogs from a particular shelter, and they're brought in one by one to see how they handle the, the marvelous chaos and activity of children. And if you have some that immediately, as I understand it, react negatively to that, whether it's licking their lips, yawning, tail curled under, leaving aside if they might growl or show a lip, then they're not asked to be in that situation because that's not going to do anybody any good. And I guess even your wonderful therapy dog that you take, American Humane Association is doing, I'm sure you know this extraordinary, uh, we've talked about it on the show, uh, Canines in Childhood Cancer Project in which they're having therapy dogs that have already been trained to be therapy dogs spend 20 minutes with a child and their family during treatment to see whether those kids and family do better than those without as you say intuitively we listen and go well of course they're going to do better who wouldn't rather have a dog there during chemo or radiation right or getting over whatever you're dealing with but I, I, the, the thing is, those dogs are putting up with a lot of stress, too. They're picking up the human stress. They're picking up all kinds of issues. And you're right. The animals need to be watched and understood. And the children themselves, in learning to look at how the animal is responding, learn a kind of empathy that they may not be able to do with other people, For whether it's the autism spectrum or other issues. They can. I think there's an, an ability for a child to empathize when it's pointed out to them by a smart educational staff, hey, this dog needs a rest. Hey, this dog needs a timeout. That kind of thing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, really, in order to be uh, effective as a staff member in human-animal interaction, you need to be fluent in child and fluent in dog <laughs> or horse or whatever yes. and really understand how to facilitate the relationship. And for the children, it's about learning simple body language of dogs. You That's know, right. what does what do the ears do? What does the tail mean? And also understanding that not every day the dog's going to feel the same way. Yes. There may be a day where the dog is going to love going for a walk and playing. There may be another day where the dog may be tired and wants to just uh, sleep. And that it the animal isn't required to always just be there for us when we need it. The animal has to also have uh, a role in the dialogue and have some choices. And it really only becomes a mutually beneficial interaction when an animal is listened to in that way. I, I think that is so eloquently put. And I must say that many of these children, in fact, every single human on earth, but especially kids that are struggling as your children are, must get a lot of a good message from that too. You don't have to be your very best self every day. Thank you so much, Michael Coffson. Thank you to Green Chimneys for all the, the brilliant work that's being done there. And I hope that many listeners will avail themselves of the, the lessons and the pleasure to be learned there. Thank you. Thank you. And hope to see everybody at Green Chimneys 
uh, if you can come by. Absolutely, I'll be I'll be down myself as soon as as soon as I can. Thank you so much. Have a great day.